that I was born on a church pew. Literally? No, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> it might as well have, have been that. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Hello, everyone. Um, today, you know, normally I'm very upbeat. I'm very in your face with the, the intro here with Humanized Family. Today is kind of a sobering one, um, one to to bring us back to to level us all out. And from the onset, I wanted to let you guys know that it could be a triggering topic, um, one that had um, historic implications and, and, and implications for our future. And also, these conversations that we normally have, I like to give a disclaimer that it's only because we have the relationship and the permission to dive deep and go where no man and woman has gone before. <laughs> no, but seriously, I just want to make sure that those two things are known from the onset. And let's get to this work, Emily. Awesome. Thank you, Courtney, for that disclaimer. And welcome. We have Patricia Raybon here, an award-winning author, essayist, and novelist who writes top-rated books at the daring intersection of faith and race. So welcome, Patricia. Thank you. I'm honored to be here today, delighted to be here today, excited to be here today to have good, hard, timely conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So we're going to focus in. So Patricia has a new book out. It is All That Is Secret. And this book is about a young Black woman who investigates her strange father's mysterious death in the 1920s in Denver and uncovers secrets about her past in this historical mystery. A lot of mystery and intrigue, kind of who did it type of book. And it's so significant that it's in Denver in the 1920s. And that's what we're really going to focus in on today is what was happening in Denver in the 1920s and specifically the very strong presence of the Ku Klux Klan. And so the focus today is going to be on suppressing history, all that is secret. So Patricia, before we we dive in, I am so curious to hear about your upbringing, where you were raised, you know, what what were the the points along your path that brought you to writing this book now? Well, thanks for this topic on this day. And thanks for that question. Somebody asked it to me recently, Emily. And my answer right off the bat was that I was born on a church pew. Literally? No, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> it might as well have been that. I was born into the faith system that my family follows. And I speak of it that way because coming to faith so early, what I heard were stories. And so, you know, in Sunday school classes and in, in church settings, I heard the 
the stories of the Bible, and we're not going to discuss today who believes that or not, but I mention it because what it said to me was that telling or exploring life through narrative and through story is um, a profound and powerful thing to do. And so I was, you know, geographically, I was raised in Colorado. I was two years old when my parents moved here from Missouri, from St. Louis, Missouri. But um, the thing that I was born into and the thing that I have always carried with me is this, this mindset that centers itself in story and where story takes us. And um, and that that and where it takes us is okay. So, well, I mean, it worked out for me because my particular the novel you mentioned, all that is secret, is historical fiction. And traditionally, winners write history. And I had always heard about the history in Denver of the, of the Ku Klux Klan, and so. I knew about history in Colorado, but from a story-making perspective, I also knew that a good story needs a threat. You know, that's a story element that any good um, novel or movie or that kind of thing operates well. But, you know, if if the engine is driven in part by a good threat, and so the, the, the clan represented that in a very natural way because that's what happened in Colorado. Colorado, um, I don't know if we talked about this before, but Colorado had the second highest Klan membership per capita of any state in the country in the early 1920s. A third of white Protestant men in Colorado were dues-paying Klan members. Leadership in Colorado from the governor on down you know, the state legislature, police chiefs, jury commissioners, sheriffs, departments. Entire, in Denver, not only was the police chief a member of the Klan, entire divisions of the police department were Klan members. And so for the purposes of writing a novel, that's a pretty good threat to ho- hover, you know, around the edges and around the background of the story. So... I didn't have to make that up. It already happened here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just curious, you know, as a white person, I think my, I I appreciate how recently the the terms of white supremacy have, have come back. You know, it used to be like white supremacists are the KKK and I'm not a white supremacist, so I'm not white supremacy. And it's interesting how it's kind of come back and, and, now more mainstream, right? More subtly defined. And, it, but it, it feels to me like that term is like starting anew as opposed to actually continuing from something before. And I'm I'm curious about your experience and, and even coming to deciding to focus on this, like this thread for the book, like how, was this just something that you were always aware of? Or I, I'm curious about how history has been suppressed for for the mainstream like why isn't this part of our identity that we've recovered from that you know we moved past that government or something or and why don't people know about it because when i mention it even here in colorado a lot of people are shocked and surprised that um 
you know, every county in Colorado had a clan collaborating. And the story of it really is about how quickly a homegrown hate group can establish itself and take off. And of course, you know, you have to, this, for context, this was after World War I. And so people all over the country were pulling inward, but also defining who belongs here. And so what the people, when the Klan took hold, what they declared is that not everybody belongs here. Only people who are white and Protestant and American born are, you know, get that okay. And everybody else is a threat and a danger. And so they targeted uh, Jews and Catholics and Blacks and immigrants. And the, the other thing that really interested me in terms of helping to spread the um, philosophy of the Klan is that, you know, this, of course, predates the Internet. But what was available all over Colorado were hundreds of newspapers. This was the newspaper era. And so um, everybody had a newspaper, including the Klan. The Klan had a weekly paper called, you know, Rocky Mountain American. And so it was it just as it is easy today for someone to go to the Internet and find the philosophy they're looking for. It was very easy then for somebody to find a news source. Mm. Oh, that's interesting to think of. Sharing and presenting and promoting white supremacy. And that was the language that was used. We are white supremacists because we are better. We are the only uh, people, the only culture, the only skin color that matters. And everybody else is a pretender. And so what's interesting to me is how easily people embrace that idea and ran with it. So, you know, the, the business of writing for me, for writing a, a historical um, mystery novel in that era was just how natural and how casual white supremacy was. It's how people lived, walked, and had their being. So my, my um, intent was to put on the page a young black theologian, young woman trying to solve the murder of, of her father, her estranged father, while living in a hostile culture. That has, and I'm, I, I believe I came to that because that has been my life challenge. How do I be me and even a, um, a casual way? You know, how do I, how do I be me on any ordinary day in a hostile culture? You know, I took my granddaughter to the mall a couple of days ago. And we were in a pretty nice store that sells clothes for her age. She's a, a young teenager. But I encountered outright hostility in that store to the extent that my granddaughter said, why was the store clerk so mean to you and I thought about it later and I thought that is my experience of being a person of color in a hostile culture 
And so that was the experience of my character in this book, because that it hasn't gone away. Yeah, you you've said a lot, Miss Patricia. I really want to appreciate you for being on, um, sparking so much for me. I just love listening to brilliance and um, being educated on a time when I didn't exist, you know. And however, um, the ancestors did, and the the, the just thinking about embracing the idea of white supremacy. To me, it's easy. I come from a lens where it's easy for people of color to embrace that reality because it's safer. You know, when you start to think about going against the grain and and, and the work that it will take to become truly free, that's a lot. That's a lot for you. That's a lot for your family. That's a lot for your loved ones. And so you kind of fall back into Stockholm syndrome. You try to to make it make it seem as though it's not that bad, you know. Being under a suppressive regime, at least we know who the leader is. At least we can make uh, if we we can hope for love if we love long enough. No matter how bad we're getting oppressed, you know. And so the idea of how hard it was to embrace that for me, it's it's harder to say, you know what, I'm going to go against that, you know, um, because almost every historical figure that has gone against that has been killed, you know, because this this country was built on the notion that it's safer to embrace what we're giving you. We brought you here. You're a slave, but at least we took you from Africa. At least we took you from that bad area to come here and gave you a job. This is why if we want to talk about critical race theory and replacement theory and all of the new, well, not they're really not new, but they're all renamed theories that are that are existent and coming up today. It's just because we're trying to get back to a time in the in the country where it was acceptable to be oppressed. You know? And 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 like like when you said just being casual about white supremacy, I mean, again, it's a safe place. It's a safe, a very safe place. And when you and your and your grandchild, I think you said, were in, the, and then you said you were living a reality of challenges of being a person of color and navigating a hostile culture. That is the existence of uh, and a reality of every person of color. They have to, they have to say, you know what, it, it is, it is what it is, you know. And so I just appreciate you just brought all of that to the forefront of my mind. And um, I really appreciate that because it is a challenge to live somewhere where you're both needed and not wanted at the same time. That's crazy. I hear you, Courtney, because it used to be that you could be safe in your house. But that's not even true anymore. And I thought about it during the pandemic. You know, there was so much talk about people feeling isolated and missing being together. And what I experienced was a sense of safety because I wasn't encountering what I encounter typically every time I leave my house. I can get to the grocery store without encountering hostility. And so during that lockdown, during the pandemic summer, that that lockdown summer, where you know we're essentially here in the house all the time, and your groceries are delivered 
and left on your front porch. <laughs> and I thought, well, this, you know what, this isn't feeling so bad to me. Because it was, you know, a time of not exposing myself to that hostility day after day and having to kind of get a gird up my loins as they, as, as they <laughs> speaking of the Bible, one of those old, old Bible terms, to just get out, out of the house and go do something. You know, to go, go to, a, not to mention, you know, go to a job every day and deal with that every day. So I complicated it by having this young woman also having to have the, the nerve to solve a murder. She, <laughs> you know, she's a, a Sherlock Holmes fan. And so I put that premise on the page, but, and people understand it. Because our, our people who are uh, truth-seeking know that it's not, you know, it's a fictional story, but it's grounded in reality. Just one other thought, and I'll hand off to, to you guys, but I was reading something the other day about a, a young man who grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya, and he was there something like 16 or 17 years and so, and somehow made it to the U.S., earned a degree, and wrote a graphic novel about his experience there with his uh, little brother, who he had to take care of because his little brother had uh, either a physical disability or some other kind of disability. But in an interview about his book, he was saying, in spite of all the the problems that were there, trying to find food and clean water and all of those things. Everybody there was black. Everybody there was an African. They might've been from different countries, but, and so it wasn't until he came to this country did he experience what we uh, commonly know of and talk about as racism. And so he started to help refugees resettle in this country because he found it so difficult to not just be a, re a, a refugee and resettling, but a man of color. Mm -hmm. And especially the Africans who come here are injected into this historical system where they're like, this, what, it, what, what, you know, yeah. like, what? <laughs> He talked about being in a grocery store one time with a family from a large family from the Congo. And he was trying to show, show them how to use the, the grocery baskets and how to navigate the store. And somebody walked down the aisle and start and yelled at them, go back from where you, you know, came from. And so he said, he turned to the person and said, your ancestors at some point were newcomers here too. This is a country that belongs to not just some people, it belongs to everybody. And so that idea that um, we all have a reason to be here and a right. We have reason and a right to be here. And that's like a different version of suppressing history as well, right? Suppressing our own history, which creates more empathy for people. And acknowledging the past and, you know, white supremacy culture is pretty, pretty skilled at cutting us off from the past so that we can just pretend like we were always here. This is our country, right? 
which is everyone knows it's not true, but we there's a temptation to act that way. Yeah, uh, you you also brought something up to the forefront of my mind when you spoke of the safety of the pandemic versus having to go out into the world every day. And I like to flip that on the head because individuals of color have always been living in a somewhat of a pandemic, you know, and so our own version of the pandemic. Um, the pandemic that we live in now has economic implications and he- healthcare implications and familial um, and all of those. And we've been living with that with the with lack of access to finances and lack of access to housing and lack of access to um, healthcare. And so we've been we know how to navigate that. The individuals who this white supremacist system has set up have been living in a free society where they have had access to all of those things. And so when the pandemic has come, it locked them in their house. Now they start to feel oppressed. Like, I can't go to work. I can't go out. I can't go to the park. I can't get this. I can't get that. And we're looking like, oh, thank God we can't get that stuff because I'm chilling at the house right now. You know, so it was just ironic to see how it flipped on its head um, in the pandemic because people of color, when we was like, well, this COVID thing is crazy. Well, I don't know, bro. I ain't going to lie. I got a nice rest. I got to sleep in for once in 30 years. You know, I mean, this this pandemic can go on for 50 years for all I can see. And so they had no problem in saying that they didn't enjoy the pandemic because they knew it was doing a lot towards the economy, but it gave us a reprieve from the normality of the oppressive system that you and your, and your granddaughter have to deal with every day, but just leaving the house, you know? So it's just weird, man. Right. It is. And, and then for people, as um, you're, you're saying for the theme of this particular episode, for people to not want you to talk about it, how dare you want to go back and um, examine our history? And uh, But, you know, for me, it's not history. It's my life. I grew up under Jim Crow segregation. I grew up before the Civil Rights Movement. I grew up before the Civil Rights Act of 1968, before the Voting Rights Act, before the uh, Fair Housing Act. And so... I remember at our, uh, our church one time, they had a program during uh, what they call vacation Bible school. That's another issue. But anyway, it had to do with looking at the civil rights era. And, um, and so they invited, whoever organized the program invited some of us to talk about growing up in that era. And the ch- for the children, they had learned of these things in books. And so for them, one little boy said, Miss Raymond, are you that old? Because in his mind, those are things that happened, you know, centuries ago. Not something that somebody who's still here grew up in. Right. Totally. Totally. And this is central to a conversation in schools right now about critical race theory and understanding that, you know, like you said at the beginning, like winners write the history right? What, how about everybody else's experience? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, now that the quote unquote winners are saying, not only do we write history, we get to say 
who even has an opportunity to talk about it. We'll make it illegal in some states, in some school districts, to even talk about what happened. How can someone acknowledge those facts, those objective facts, and not see that as oppression? Well, they're saying that they try to separate church and state, school and state, and all that stuff. And so when you have, it's the role of the house to interject the the morals to a student and a child. And so the argument is teachers are supposed to just give you one plus one equals two and keep their own political views out of the child's um, just learnings. So that is the argument for not teaching ch- children that they were actually slaves here in America and not just workers, you know? And so uh, when you start to to veer off of that, it becomes, in, in some people's mind, a political issue. Just like a mask mandate is something now that you can't force us to wear a mask because it's going against freedom, you know? So, people, so they're conflating issues towards whatever end they 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 want to to get to so that's why you know an interesting part of that uh, another interesting part of that is um that any history suppresses all angles Mm. and so one of the things that surprised me in colorado is that even though colorado was such a hotbed for the clan if a third of white male Protestants were clan members. That means two-thirds weren't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, somebody told me yesterday that she said, I think of, Cal- of Colorado as kind of California adjacent. <laughs> you know, that because we're it's it's a bluish, purplish state, depending on what part of the state you live in. And so she was surprised about that part of the history. And, and I was saying to her, well, Whatever we are now, the state moved out of that clan era because enough people, including enough white people, said, we think we don't want to live this way. And so when people suppress the history, they also suppress that part of the history. That's interesting. Right. Because it just feels so traumatic to even think that's part of the history, but something happened there. And how, do you know when that was that that the the clan kind of diminished in their role? Yes, all of this happened during the nineteen early nineteen twenties. So by the time of the stock market crash, the clan had uh, fallen out of favor. I, and I'll tell you why that happened in just a minute. But just a story about that: at the University of Colorado, the president at the time was a man named George Norlin. And the Klan ordered him to fire all Jewish and Catholic faculty. And he, when he refused, the state legislature, which was Klan run, because most of the members were Klan, were Klan members, cut the campus budget to zero. And so, you know, it's a state that was, the, it still is, the largest state-funded university in, in Colorado. And so he had to come up with other ways to keep the campus funded and going. But what's interesting is if you are a student at CU Boulder, you know the name Norland because the library, the main library is named after him. But I bet you'd be hard pressed to find 
a student there, and I was I earned my master's degree there, who knows that connection between Norland Library, the name of the library, and the president who stood up against Klan influence of that year. Not that he was perfect. I mean, CU Boulder didn't accept black people, uh, not only just as students, but as uh, residents in the dorms until fairly late in the game, you know, in the 40s, 50s, you know. But um, when we suppress history, we lose the opportunity to look at every aspect of a particular movement, story, moment. You know, we, we lose um, the opportunity to contextualize what uh, happened and how it relates to what's happening now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's as if somebody says, okay, just walk around in your world with no context, with no information, with no understanding. Right. And we lose, like, how people stood up to power then, you know, how they created change, things that we can replicate and mimic now and learn from and not feel so like, there's nothing I can do. It's like, actually, there's been a lot that's been done. We just not focused on it. And yeah, that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. The thing, the thing about it is uh, white supremacy is not about context. It's about power. Right. And so if, if you're, if you're looking for context, that's the, 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 the wrong system to, to, to really, try to find since then because it was created to have the monopoly on power. And so sometimes when we think about freedom from white supremacy, it's like a weird oxymoron because freedom is looking at context, the context of freedom. White supremacy is looking on power. You know, so if we, the only way to kind of level that off is economics, this is where when you talk about freedom and you inject economics into it, now we get to a powerful thing because white supremacy only knows economics. It always comes back to the money. Slavery came back to the money. You know, healthcare comes back to the money. Housing, education, it comes back to the money. And so when we pair freedom and have the economics as something that we're going to wield like a sword, now we start to address a system because with Martin, he went to the busing, right? He said, you know what? All right, cool. Let me sit down in the restaurant and mess up your business so that now you can see me. Let me not, let me make sure the bus is not running because the mass transportation is a business, you know? And so now we, now we get to the money. And so that's why it's hard for for sometimes you think about white supremacy versus freedom. They're two different things. That's why. Yes. You know, I appreciate that. Somebody was talking just yesterday about a statue of Thomas Jefferson coming down. I can't remember where. But um, the person t on the news talking about mentioned that, well, I'll say it this way. How did somebody like Thomas Jefferson go from urging the founders to move away from slavery to owning ultimately 600 slaves? The answer is economic. And so, you know, the removal of opportunity to discuss these kinds of things and um, 
say, no, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. Means that um, a lot of people live in a fiction. You know, I wrote fiction. What is that idiom about truth is better than more than fiction? I, I'm, not, I'm misstating the idiom. But a lot of people live every day in a fiction of what their country is. They believe the fiction. They have bought into the feel-good stories instead of looking hard at the truth. You know, I guess people do that in their families. Truth is a hard thing to confront. You know, it's Thanksgiving. Are we going to have to talk about this? Let's just eat the turkey. (laughs) Right. Can't we just, yeah. Yeah. But when we start looking at the hard things, then um, the moving out under of any kind of oppression, that's where it's going to happen. That's where it's going to happen. Absolutely. It has to happen there. There's no way around it. There's no, you know, it's like giving birth, you know, like there's no way around it. (laughs) You got to go through the canal unless... There's an emergency. I love everything that you just said, and I'm jotting down notes frantically, but I, you know, our time is almost up here, and I just do not want to end this interview without asking you about a book that you wrote 25 years ago. So this is My First White Friend. The first line of it is, God help me, I stopped hating white people on purpose about a year ago. So I am I am so curious. Um, a lot has happened in racial justice in 25 years. I'm curious just if you can offer us some perspective on like, first of all, how that that transformation occurred for you and how do you see that the evolution over the last 25 years of racial justice movement and hmm. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for reading that first line. It used to be a website on uh, good first lines no, or something like it that. It is a great first line. I mean, that is enough <laughs> to, that's a great hook. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my, my first white friend was always on that list. But um, when I look over 25 years, I am aware of legal change. You know, when I I grew up and visited my relatives in the South with my family, we cannot eat on the way down there. We cannot eat in a lot of the restaurants, you know, on the interstate highway. We couldn't stay in hotels. Whenever we get to a city, we'd have my, my dad would have to go find the black neighborhood and say, is there anybody here who has a rooming house or who will take in our family. And then there were signs that said whites only. So, you know, and and drinking fountains. And so I'm not going to see that anymore. There's de facto segregation. We know that. But that kind of overt announcement that you do not count and you do not fit and your life does not matter. That was impossible to not encounter. So, you know, I'm redlining neighborhood. Somebody asked me, a woman who grew up in Denver like me, she said, where did you grow up? And I wanted to say, I grew up the only place that I could grow up because of redlining. She didn't understand about how mortgages and the real estate industry 
uh, dictated where black people could live and buy a mortgage. I mean, the banks really worked that system because if you were, if you could only live in a neighborhood that was so-called run down, then the bank said, well, we're not going to sell you a mortgage because the neighborhood is run down. So, you know, how could you uh, grow, you know, generational wealth? The systems of that are what people don't want to talk about. And so legally, a lot of that has been broken down. But socially, the hostility and how that plays out. My husband and I were watching the sports talk show the other day, how 70% of the players in the NFL are African-American. But I think there are only three coaches in the whole NFL who are black. And so, and they, they were saying, how does that happen? Because friends hire friends and friends hire family. The in-group is strong. Yes. So, you know, it, even legally with things officially changing, the uh, reality of the culture we live in is still current. And uh, so what individuals have to do, and I was mentioning this to uh, my, my youngest daughter yesterday, is decide how am I going to live in this culture and uh, with a sense of dignity and walking in self-agency and a sense of self-value and just putting on that armor every day. Because it's a fight. Putting that on every day so I can go out in the world and do my work and try to get home safe. So, uh, you know, the requirement for a person of color to still have to figure that out is still real and it still exists. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that perspective and for linking us to the the past in this really important way in this very personal, tangible way. Really, really appreciate that. Well, and to close on a note of hope. Yeah, <laughs> that's always nice. That's, what, that's <laughs> why I, during the pandemic, I thought, well, what am I going to do? And so I wrote a novel. And, um, you know, a person has to decide, has to stand up within themselves and do whatever they have to do. You uh, are producing this podcast. Whatever one has to do to say, I know what you may or may not think about me or think I, I can do, but I'm, I'm, this is something that I'm doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so, you know, we can um, make that choice and then get get going. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ms. Patricia. I, um, I'm so humbled and so um, appreciative that you you are writing this this poignant book and you you came to talk to us today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I really appreciate your your words, your wisdom, your insight, and as we move closer to freedom. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'll have links to both of the books that we mentioned today in the show notes. And yeah, look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love. 